Welcome to the International Civil Society Center's Futures and Innovation Podcast. My name is Nimburan Bogwa. I'm a communications consultant based in Nairobi and passionate about knowledge sharing and information accessibility. The Center's annual innovation report brings into focus innovations that can benefit international civil society organizations and also shows in turn how these organizations are benefiting society in challenging or complex contemporary contexts. This podcast episode forms part of the 2022 edition on civil society innovation and digital power shift, highlighting promising innovations by civil society organizations in delivering solutions for digital inclusion. In each of these podcast case stories, we really want to lift the lid on these innovations and hear directly from the people at the heart of designing and delivering them. Today, I am joined by the team from Code for Pakistan, Ali Raza, the Director of Technology, Mavesh Khan, who is Head of Communications, and Ibrahim Salim, the Program Manager of the KP Fellowship Program, which we'll be highlighting throughout this episode. I'd just like to add for our listeners, KP is a province in the north of Pakistan. So if I could ask, who is your organization and what do you do? So Code for Pakistan is not-for-profit. We're based out of Pakistan. And essentially what we do is we do civic tech and gov tech. So we essentially partner with the government to create programs and technology that meet the needs of people where they are. And one of the ways that we do this is actually through the fellowship program, which is now, I think, in its seventh cycle. So it's been seven years running. And we are getting quite a bit of interest now um, in taking this program from the provincial level to provinces, but also to the federal level. Excellent. So there's been a lot of progress since the beginning of the fellowship program. To follow up on this, why does this project and program matter in Pakistan in particular? There's a basic problem all across the world. It's not something to do with how governments work or how people think. It's more to do with the mindset that it's really hard to come by Silicon Valley-like talent in, in, in a government organization. You know, people who are very tech-savvy or they think about unicorns and startups, they usually do <laughs> not pair working with the government. So so what the fellowship program does and, and the reason it exists is because it pairs exactly those kind of people with the governments, with stakeholders mm-hmm. in the governments. And it addresses a huge problem, which, which is the non-existence of those skills in the government and coming up with solutions that are actually faced towards the citizen, you know, where somebody has actually sat down and mapped the user stories, the journey, the user experience. So, so the fellowship program is, is a tried and tested model. It has been, you know, working in, in the States for quite some time. There are other countries who are following in the same same model. They do not supposedly call it a fellowship program, but it's it's the same thing, where we pair, we find that talent, the you know the top tech people, top storytellers, top designers, and pair them where government is hurting the most. So, to put it short, this is the actual amalgamation of the people working with the government or the government working with the people for the people. 
And that's such an important aspect of all government work to work for the people. And I think it's such an incredible initiative because so so many of us have governments that are failing us or fall short. And so to pair pair experts in tech is quite is quite the is quite the accomplishment. Following up from that, what is your understanding of the wider power dynamics in the system? And how is your work intervening to change that system? Okay, this is very disruptive work. So so it does directly change a lot of things. But but here's the thing. If people start looking at it as a power struggle, especially our partners, if they start looking at it as a power struggle or that these guys are going to replace us, I, I don't think it's going to work. The spirit of such programs is where hey, you guys are the people who have the power and the pen to make changes. We have the talent to make your dreams come true. You, mm-hmm. You've always thought about implementing a system for X, but you haven't been able to do that. So let's work together. You take care of the bureaucracy for me. I'll take <laughs> care of the technology for you. It's not, not a power dynamic, but really a hand-in-hand collab that makes this successful. So in terms of the power dynamics, what we are also thinking about more is what was in place prior to this program? What was happening and how did this program then intervene to change that system and to kind of change it in a direction that it's now working for the people? Mavish, would you like to take this one? I don't think that there was anything in Pakistan before Code no, for Pakistan. That is correct. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that we're the ones who started, kind of started it, and we started it more as a movement. It was Shiba Najmi, who's our founder and executive director. She, she had been a Code for America fellow, which is a very prestigious fellowship in America. So she basically took sort of that model and tried to apply it over here. And of course, it's different from, she had to modify it somewhat, but it's, it's the same idea. The thing that she did was a hackathon. Right. And yep. it was like with no money whatsoever. She <laughs> she was in Karachi and there were so many people who just wanted to be a part of it. There was like no promise of prize money. And really it was nothing. It was it was just a bunch of like, you know, she had a few allies and partners in the city and they all got together and somebody like donated a space. They kind of put it all together with nothing whatsoever. And it was like a huge, huge success. And so that's kind of why Code for Pakistan sort of honors that first hackathon with a hackathon every year. But that's sort of the civic engagement piece of it, because people want to be involved and they want to make this country better. People just don't really know how to how to do it. And so that's kind of what what we do as well, particularly through the fellowship program is that we find these people who want to make a difference in their country, but we pair them up with people in the government also. And one of the other things that we try to tell people also, one of our messages is you don't have to be a coder to be a civic hacker, right? So it's basically you play to your strengths. So if you are a writer, right, we need content writers. And if you're a designer, you know, we could always use help with graphic designing, right? It's just a matter of like using your strengths to be able to help the government do what they need to do and being a part of the process. Amazing. And what a fantastic response to the hackathon. It's so beautiful to see situations where people come in together and bring what they can, even when there's no monetary value. And so I can imagine it felt very fulfilling to accomplish that. So so the way I, I see it, the journey, 
is that the Karachi's hackathon opened that whole debate about, oh, okay, so this, there's a thing called civic tech and then you've got these civic hackers. Now, usually the word hacker in Pakistan is associated with something negative. Yes. It, that's not the case. The second hackathon, that's where I was involved. So I think that was nine years ago. Thank you so much for that answer, Ali. This actually brings me to my next question. Can you talk more about how the fellowship and the hackathons have intervened in the government system dynamics in terms of meaningful access to technology, the tools that you have used, some of the skills and learning communities that may have been built, and also if anything has happened on the policy side? With the fellowships, I think the way we help the government, I'll talk about the first hackathon, which happened in 2014. So the theme yeah. of that hackathon was we collected problem statements from different government departments. And I participated in that hackathon as a team. And one of the departments that had a problem statement was the energy and power department. So the problem then was that there was a lot of electricity theft happening in the KP province and they wanted a solution to report. They wanted a reporting mechanism. So we built a civic tech solution a citizen journalism type of solution where a user can report electricity theft using a mobile app. And that led to the formation of the fellowship program. And we continued working on that, the idea or an MVP. And that led to us like handing over the solution to the government department. So every year, once the fellowship started, we, we followed the same procedure. We used to go to the government departments with the problem statement collection drive. And we used to collect problem statements. And that those problem statements started to increase year on year. There's an increase or there's an increase of interest within the government departments of KP and they really want to access these talented fellows who can develop technology-based solutions, civic tech solutions or e-government solutions for different problem statements for the government departments. And last year, we in, in October, we did a GovTech hackathon and we invited problems and ideas from all across Pakistan. And we, we did a hybrid a hackathon where participants right. participated from all over Pakistan, solutions were created on different themes and different problem statements. So, so th this idea is gaining momentum and I think the interest from the government is increasing each successive fellowship cycle as well. And we have more solutions that are being deployed. The interest from the government, as you know, that due to digitization and also after COVID, there is a lot of realization within the governments all across the world that technology is the future. It has been phenomenal and it's, it's growing day by day. In fact, I once had just recently, so I think in the some of the conversations that we've had previously, we talk about how we have discussed taking the fellowship from KP and sort of replicating it in other provinces. So I did have a conversation with the chief secretary, Balochistan. Balochistan is a very, very poor province. It's the poorest province actually in Pakistan. So I was having a conversation with him, kind of pitching the fellowship model to him. And he said to me that it was his very sincere belief that this is the only way that anything in Pakistan will change. Oh, and wow. it's, through, it's through technology and programs like this. That's a very powerful statement. And it's probably true as well. From the procedures and collecting problem statements that have needed tech solutions from the government, it's wonderful to hear that there's an increase every year. And I wonder, are there learning communities that have formed between citizens and the government, or even just amongst citizens themselves who would like to work in this field? We have a huge volunteer network as a result of the cloud that we have built. There's like lots of people who are from different walks of life. Not everybody is a techie. Some are even people who work in the government, but they have ideas, they have the urge to try and solve something for the citizens. 
So, so we have something called Civic Innovation Lab, which is a concept that we have in Peshawar, which is the capital of KP, and another one in Islamabad. So what, what Civic Innovation Labs do is that this is more like where those volunteers meet up, talk about ideas. So everything is open. All solutions we build are open. So if there's something that can be redeployed for a specific purpose, they do that. Or, you know, they just meet and talk about what problems the common man faces. So that is another aspect of this whole movement, the Civic Innovation Labs. So I think that's one major part of the community out there right now in Pakistan. May I ask if you could give us an example of some of the solutions that maybe have been redeployed or used in different settings? Ibrahim, do you have insight on this that you'd like to share with us? Civic Innovation Lab in Peshawar is pretty active. So in the sixth cycle, we work very closely with the livestock and dairy research department. So the sort of areas the department used to work on was on the livestock sector. There was an initiative by the Prime Minister of Pakistan where they wanted to support farmers within KP in a project where they wanted to track how many cattle they have and whether they, they do regular checkups and all. So our right. volunteers, a team of volunteers work with that department and they develop this, this online system that helped the department track these farmers and the livestock they had. And they used to give them alerts, different types of vaccines to get uh, those vaccines on time and whether their health was in check. So the impact of the solution was pretty great. Like it involved close to 1,000 plus farmers across mm. TP, continually working on that solution. And there are some other solutions as well. We are currently, we, we run this exercise within KP and we are constantly looking for solutions that can be replicated at the federal level as well. Our team of volunteers are always active and there's, uh, they're always looking to volunteer for different kinds of initiatives. The HCI app is something that we are working on right now. And it's a very, another good example of an old, something that we built already and redeployed. Mm. We did another fellowship program with NIH pilot yes. was a very shorter one for like three months and one of the apps that we were working on actually we started working on it way before the fellowship even uh, with our own developers it was called LabTech. that app was was used for collecting information or just filling up surveys when a team whoever is responsible visits a, a laboratory to see if it's up to the standards and then puts all of that information on the dashboard. What we are doing with HCI, we're working with WHO and PIMS, which is like a major hospital here in Islamabad. And right. the app that we are building is actually very similar. What it does is that, um, you know, it tries to uh, find a trend if there's an increase in infections that are caused after surgery. So that will okay. help these healthcare professionals understand where they have a problem. Like, for example, if you're having too many infections after an appendix surgery, there's something wrong in that department or, or in the practice. So the core of the core data component of that app comes from the LabTech app. Because LabTech was open source, nobody's property, it has always been open source. We took that core component of the surveys and the database and we put that inside HCI and we built another interface on top of it. So that is exactly one of the examples that where we redeployed an existing solution. I wanted to share another example from the Peshawar Civic Innovation Lab. So yes. back in 2020, our team worked with the Department of Youth Affairs and they had an interesting concept of books and wheels. So there was the department design a vehicle with the library of sorts. And our team worked with the department in, in developing a books management software and a payment system for the books and wheels project. So that was a very a community-led effort 
And that project took a lot of traction and a lot of news coverage as well. These are sort of the solutions that, that are developed by the community, like the sort of volunteers that work, work pro bono. They take no charges for that. And our effort is that the solutions that we create are also focused towards the community, like that empowers a community somehow. So this is another example that I wanted to share from Peshawar Civic Innovation Lab. Thank you so much, Ibrahim, for that example, because it fits in a lot with what I wanted to ask next which is how design equity has been factored. So in these solutions and, the, and in the projects that you do, how are you designing with the community rather than at the community that is going to use it? On the fellowships part, I would like to add that human-centered design and doing user research, asking users what their needs are for a particular solution, we do this very rigorously. In the initial months of the fellowship program, once the requirements gathering is done, with the government department, our fellows go out there and interview different types of stakeholders and citizens who will eventually be using the online system. And we want to do this because we, we want to create solutions that, that are human-centered, that eventually when they get deployed are used by citizens and they fulfill the needs of the citizens. We have created close to 47 digital solutions and all of these solutions have been developed by conducting thorough user research and the design thinking principles. And we also do department trainings. We do user testing with the department staff. All of this activity is to ensure that once the solutions are deployed, the department is capable enough to maintain those solutions and is able to fulfill the citizens' needs and demands. I will also like to ask Ali if he can share a few points. When it comes to design, because we build for the people, that user story aspect or understanding what the user's experience is going to be and involving them is, is of very paramount importance to us. So I would like to give the example of this solution we've been building. It's an open source framework for providing digital services. We call it the super app. We built it so that it can be used as a blueprint anywhere in the world. It has its own stack where, you know, for authentication, authorization, guides on how to expose new services. Because the problem, one citizen has 23 different apps for the digital services that their government provides. Usually, I have 23. Yes. Maybe a small number. I've seen like 50. Right now. So, <laughs> so, so the super app solves that. So part of the inspiration started off as a conversation with, with the KPA IT board. And from day one, what we've done is that we've involved the citizens into it, keeping things like extending to local languages, you know, the accessibility guidelines, as well as the yeah. what are the current problems that they face when they're using an existing app for, let's say, verifying a traffic violation ticket that they received. So what what's the pang there? So, so we have a whole study that we did with picking up different people from the city, talking to them, sitting down with them, showing them what we have, doing a split test on the user interfaces. I think the design equity part for us is that whoever we are building the app for, they have complete ownership of that too. Just like how we are building it, they are involved. The people are involved because at the end of the day, it's they who are going to use it. That's our objective. So we do very thorough user journey and user research. Thank you, Ali, for sharing that because I think the use of local languages in these apps is also so important, especially in countries like Pakistan or where I am in Kenya. 
where you find a significant number of the population does not speak English or the national languages. So that's fantastic to hear that it's incorporated. In terms of including users in the design and in the process of building the solutions that you do, is there also a part where there's feeding data, where users can also feed data or insights and lessons back into the system? That question takes you back to one particular app, which was a redeployment. So when Shiba was a fellow at Code for America, they developed a solution called, she was working with the government of Honolulu. So they built a solution called Honolulu Answers. And the whole idea right. was that crowdsourcing information from the citizens, making it easier, not written. It's usually government language is very hard to understand. You need to take, yes. you need to go there, take three steps back, get out of jail free card. And then, you know, so I'm just messing with you. No, there's nothing like that. But still, it is very hard. I, I call them monopoly rules because it becomes very hard for me to understand sometimes too. So the whole objective was to make it easier to understand in very you know, normal language. So in the first fellowship cycle, we redeployed Honolulu Answers as a solution called Rehnuma. And this was where we did the first write-a-thon, where we invited people from the community, everyone, to just pool answers to questions that people had submitted before. How do I apply for a driver's license? How do I get my child's birth certificate? So simple, super simple answers to those questions. So, so oh, fantastic! That that feedback is that feedback loop where the people are continuously be a part of not just the technical development, but the info dev part, the insight part, that, that is very essential to our apps. And that's a perfect example I can think of right now. Amazing. Thank you. And so it's, it's so innovative. Following on from this, what are the signs of the wider impact and influence you're seeing beyond the intended purpose of some of these solutions? We are on everybody's radar. One thing, not just in Pakistan, but all across the world. Mm. There's like a huge code for all network, which we are a part of. This is where people from different countries are reaching out and working together. So we want to take it broader than a city to a more global level. So we recently, working with Code for Mexico, published a participatory democracy process framework. Like how can you involve people to the democratic process at, at a more basic level, not like they voted for someone and now they don't have anything else to say other than write letters to their uh, constituents. So that framework is, is in collab with Code for Mexico and between us it's published. That's the, I think, broader part of the spectrum thinking globally that we all have something to give back. And if we kind of bring it down just a little bit, I mean, I think the fellowship was pretty ingenious and mm. in helping us really build within Pakistan itself. I mean, because look at it, like Ibrahim is going to various government departments and just based on this, you know, the fellowship program is the longest running program that we have. And for a while, it was like the only program that we had. We've been advising on policy. So KP has like an open data policy that we were very much a part of. So it, it gave us a lot of visibility from there. I think we also worked on the prime minister's citizens portal, and that led to a relationship with uh, Digital Pakistan. That's how we grew our fellowship from the provincial level to the federal level. But, you know, right now we're working with the CDA, the Capital Development Authority, on possibly digitizing land records, which still is like a huge, huge problem in Pakistan. 
The Islamabad Capital Authority wants to redo its whole domicile verification process, and they've reached out to us, and we've had meetings with various ministers, chief secretaries of the provinces who want to replicate the program. So, I mean, just that one fellowship just opened up all of this for Code for Pakistan, just in terms of like the network we were able to build and the connections that we made. So that's just more at a local level. I know Ali was taking it more to like a global level, but we've had a lot of visibility there too. Yeah. Awesome. We want to hear about all of it from a global level to a local level, because we are also looking at how the solutions that Code for Pakistan is coming up with have also impacted the world beyond their intended purpose. And so both of these answers are fantastic. Moving on from there, I wanted to ask, what are the key metrics which you use to track the progress or the performance of some of the initiatives you've spearheaded? For all the solutions that we develop under the fellowship program, we have a rigorous monitoring and evaluation criteria for those solutions. So once these solutions are under development, we, we ensure that we integrate analytics on all of the digital solutions. And once they are deployed, we track different types of metrics. So one of the most primary metrics that we track is user serve or citizen serve for that matter. And also since these solutions are aimed towards simplifying government processes, we also track how much hours these solutions save for the government. So we track government hours saves for these solutions. And also we track how many services are accessed by citizens. We track what is the simplification for the citizens in order to acquire a license or in acquiring a particular service. So we, we do track that. We have developed an internal ME metrics da dashboard that we constantly collect data on, and we have an internal reporting mechanism on that as well. We also try to publish reports and impact of the uh, solutions that we develop. We publish a report, and we're currently in the process of writing a report for the for the sixth cycle and for uh, almost seven solutions that we develop. So for us, tracking metrics is really important because at the end of the day, these solutions are citizen-centered. These are civic tech solutions, and we have to be able to verify on the effectiveness of these solutions. Fantastic. And what's one project that comes to mind that has saved many hours? There are a couple. So I like to highlight a couple of projects. We do take a lot of pride in and we are really happy on the impact figures. Since 2014 till the seventh cycle, over 1.4 million citizens or users have, have been served through the digital solutions developed under the fellowship program. In terms of our save for different government departments, close to 120,000 hours have been saved for the government in terms of processing time. And we calculate it based on our own criteria. With the process automation, what we calculate is how many hours would the government would have taken if the process was manual. So we, we calculate on the number of hours a day has, for example, a government has to allocate resources and those resources would have some, some cost and some time. So with these projects, you have saved about 120,000 hours of government time. That works out to about 5,000 days, which is almost 14 years. So this is a huge amount of time saved and clearly demonstrates the value of this collaboration between Code for Pakistan and government institutions. I would like to share a couple of high impact projects, which also on the conversations of the driving licenses. In the fifth cycle, we developed the Rapta app for the traffic police department. And what the app does is that it allows users to find out how to apply for a driving license and find out 
different chalans if they have some uh, road violation so they can look up the amount due for a particular road violation they can learn about driving tests and they can learn about the nearest driving school for acquiring a license so one is the rafta app rafta in in urdu means access or communication so right. we we develop develop for the traffic police department we also develop a pharmacy license registration or digitization process for the department of health in the sixth cycle in 2020 so that solution has completely digitized the process of acquiring a pharmacy license so what that did is that it has brought in more transparency within the pharmaceutical sector and it has curbed illegal pharmacies or for that matter duplicate licenses of from occurring within the kp province and th- there's a long list we also work with the livestock department as i mentioned earlier as well and we have yes. digitized four labs within that department and the impact of that solution has been that the department has been able to digitize four labs and it has facilitated the citizens especially the rural part of kp because a lot of livestock and dairy farming is is very essential for the livelihood of the people of kp so it has helped in expediting results uh, generating results and communicating or uh, you know relaying that results online and uh, via telephone so previously people had to come to the headquarters in peshawar and it used to have multiple visits and those visits used to cost a lot of money because you have to bring your cattle along with you and you have to come back to obtain the results but now the process has been digitized so the list is long as i mentioned that we have developed 47 solutions the impact has been there which has helped us scale the fellowship at the federal level and as mahavish mentioned we are also in conversations with other major provinces in pakistan and we are hopeful that we'll be able to scale the fellowship very soon And just to interrupt there, Ibrahim said chalan, which is basically a traffic ticket. I don't yeah. know. Thank you for the clarification. These metrics are so impressive and well done to you guys for, for accomplishing all of this work that you have. To wrap up our conversation, I have two final questions. And one would be, what are the main takeaways for other organizations based on this experience? This is one of the most basic things, like almost everybody knows. there's no such thing as this is this work is not highly impactful whatever you do whatever little you do to change something to make somebody's life better even if it's just an article or a small video it's it's not yes. small this is something that i really tell everybody who's who's in this in this tech space or in the civic tech space with us that do whatever you can with whatever you have so this, i think that is the main takeaway to to see even if you're not try, if you're not getting an alliance partner build it anyway build it in the open mm. talk about it let people know about it what you've built or what you are working on you might be surprised people will take interest governments will take interest and you might be able to do some really civic good in the world that is great advice ali yeah no i think that's actually a pretty good end note <laughs> <laughs> I still have my last question which is what is next for the program and the and the projects that you're working on do you see any other opportunities that can open up as a result of the work you've already done and what do you right. hope to see in the next 5 years so i think there's quite there's been quite a bit that happened since the, the fellowship program especially with just within the last year or so from the fellowship program we started something called the women civic internship program so it runs alongside the fellowship program but we we've taken basically nine women from remote areas of kp and they basically go through the fellowship curriculum and they work alongside government officers and they do so virtually because as you can probably imagine there are a lot of like social and economic barriers that women face when it comes to like anything like this 
We will continue that and we're hoping to grow that program as well. Then again, we've talked a little bit more about how we're looking to scale the fellowship program itself, take it to other provinces. One of the primary areas that we are looking to expand on is women in tech. We want to scale the internship program across different major cities of Pakistan and also scale the fellowship program. And also one of the key activities that we do in a year is, is our hackathon. So we want to make our hackathons larger and work on more themes, different themes within the GovTech sector. And also on the community aspect, we want to expand our community. We want more volunteers to be involved within Code for Pakistan and also do more exchange programs like the one we did with Code for Mexico. I think there's a lot of interest within the international Code for All community. And we are very eager to collaborate on different sort of exchange programs. And one thing on the previous question that you asked, I wanted to add that I think what's unique about Code for Pakistan is that the way we work with government, and I, I think a lot of CSOs internationally, I think their, their work sometimes is they don't view government as a, as a partner. But I think what we mm. have done within, within Code for Pakistan is our work with, the, with government. And the way we have modeled the fellowship program, the way we have developed these civic tech solutions in partnership with the government speaks to the value of working closely with the government. And I think this model can be replicated across the world, especially in developing countries, especially in the global south context. So I think I see a lot of value in the work we do. And I think us scaling, our team is growing. I think they are wonderful people within our team. And I think if we can grow and grow our team, I think there are a lot of areas where we can work within Pakistan and also internationally as well. I will, I will add to that, that I actually come from my previous experience was like holding governments accountable, politicians accountable through like protests and petitions and writing letters to the editor. And so this model is like completely brand new to me, but it really shows that the government bureaucrats and other government officers really do see us as allies and they reach out to us and other civil society organizations based in Pakistan who also, you know, have like strong government connections. They're constantly reaching out to, out to us, pitching projects to us. It's also, you know, in a, in a country like Pakistan also, I think where they're and rightly so, sometimes government officers are also, and just, just government generally is just a little bit um, suspicious of non-for-profits and, and the NGO sector here. But this, the, the way that we work, I think it really works. Yes, the way you work definitely speaks to, I mean, the, the way the government has embraced Code for Pakistan and you your organization managing to work so well and achieve results and have these metrics that are working for you is such a testament to the transparency also of all the work that you've done. And so with that, I wanted to thank you all so much. Thank you for coming onto the podcast. The work that you've been doing is incredible. It's inspiring. And it shows us that there's a lot of hope for the future, in, especially in places where citizens may feel that the government is not working for them or may have frustrations in that sector. So thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. Thank you for having you. us. You can find links to more information and resources on both this innovative work and the Center's 2022 Civil Society Innovation and Digital Power Shift Report in the podcast description. We would like to thank the Center's innovation partner, TechSoup, for kindly supporting this report. We would also like to thank the Patrick J. McGovern Foundation and the Ford Foundation for their support in making this project happen. And thanks as always to the podcast producer, Julia Passos, 
We couldn't do these episodes without you.